Hello and welcome to the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast. This is a podcast to help you find peace with food and overcome disordered eating. And I'm Harriet Frew, aka the Eating Disorder Therapist. And I'm so excited to share with you all kinds of stories, tips, information and guest interviews to help you on your journey in finding peace with food. So thank you so much for listening today. Now today I'm speaking to Molly Fennig, who is an author and researcher. Molly self-published her first novel, Insomnus, at the age of 17. And throughout college, she published short stories in the Blue Root Literary Magazine, The Blue Nib, the Running Wild Press Anthology, Havoc 2020 Anthology, and other literary presses. Her second novel, Starvation, was published by Immortal Works in November 2020 when she was 22. The book explores themes such as male eating disorders and mental health and won a 2021 Independent Press Award. Born and raised in Minnesota, Molly got a degree in neuroscience with minors in English and Spanish from Swarthmore College. And she's currently pursuing her PhD in clinical psychology with a specialization in eating disorders from Washington University in St. Louis. Her research has been published in multiple scientific journals. Well, I'm really excited to be speaking to Molly today. We're gonna be talking about her book, also more about her research that she's doing and her studying at the moment in clinical psychology. Molly has clearly already accomplished so much already and is clearly very passionate about eating disorders and making a difference in terms of passing on those positive recovery messages. So I'm really excited. Let's get to the interview. Hi, Molly. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Hi, thanks for having me. So Molly, could you introduce yourself, please, to the listeners? Yeah, so I'm Molly Fennig. I am a young adult fiction author. I'm going to school for my PhD in clinical psych with a passion or specialization in eating disorders. And I have a golden doodle peach who's about half of my personality. (laughs) And yeah, super excited to be here. Oh, thank you, Molly. And Peach has already been doing some barking, hasn't she, in the background a bit earlier? (laughs) Yeah, sometimes when people walk by, we're working on it, but she wants to let me know that somebody's there. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, if she does bark on the podcast, she's very welcome to like contribute. (laughs) (laughs) She has a lot of thoughts, so... So Molly, obviously you have just recently released your second book, which is called Starvation. Um, But could you first just tell us a bit about like, have you always been a writer? I think in a way, you know, always been somebody who really liked reading and always wrote, you know, when you're a little kid and you write little short stories that maybe don't make sense. Always doing that. I didn't really get into writing and writing longer pieces until high school. Actually, my great uncle got me or had an old typewriter that I took. And so I was like, well, now that I have a very official typewriter, I have to write a very official book and kind of develop from there. I quickly learned the typewriter was not a great place to write on. And the computer has a lot of great advances, like being able to edit. So, but I guess in high school, I really started writing longer pieces and writing more seriously and consistently. Mm, okay. No, well, thank you for sharing that. And like, yeah, I can imagine that like typing on a typewriter would be like really hard work after all the <laughs> <laughs> editing stuff that we have on um, like our PCs and things. Yeah, for sure. 
And so Molly, what was your first book? Was that to sort of do with mental health as well? Or was that something very different? I think it has like maybe thoughts of mental health in it. So my first book is Insomnus. And when I was growing up, I had a lot of insomnia, probably from some anxiety and other things. So the book really touches on, you know, people having powers when they sleep, because for me, sleep was like this kind of magical thing that I couldn't quite get to. Mm -hmm. So I think it has like undertones of mental health, but not as explicit as like starvation, my second book. Mm -hmm. Okay. And with your second book, Starvation, which I know was, it was published, wasn't it, in November 2020? And that's about male eating disorders and mental health. And I think, you know, a book I've literally just finished reading, I've kind of like read it over this weekend. I just wonder what made you decide to sort of focus on male eating disorders? Like what really inspired you to write this book? Yeah, I remember I was taking a clinical psychology class in college and the professor had kind of thrown up a statistic that, you know, depending on the disorder, up to half of people with an eating disorder are male. That's usually more for binge eating. But, you know, I'd never even heard of any (laughs) having an eating disorder. So that really shocked me. And I started looking into it more and just really not finding a lot of literature or information about it and really wanting to share that side of it. And I think a lot of times, you know, this idea of like the white woman having an eating disorder really disadvantages other people too, not just men, you know, people of color and those in larger bodies and things like that. And so feeling like that was a way to just increase awareness that it's not just the stereotypical white woman who can have an eating disorder. Mm. I think I think it's just so helpful that that you've written this book and you're kind of raising this awareness because I think it's so true actually that many people from you know I think men or from other people from marginalized groups often they're experiencing you know they have an eating disorder but they because they don't fit that sort of white um, teenage girl sort of stereotype then they don't feel that their symptoms are valid or don't feel that they can access help. So I think, you know, they often do remain very isolated, don't they? Yeah. Or even that, even if they believe that they do, that doctors or other health professionals might overlook them so that they really need to have more conviction and really advocate for themselves. So wanting to give them the confidence that to advocate for themselves and get that help. Mm, sure. Yeah. So really kind of trying to empower people to recognize that they, they do have a voice and to take their symptoms seriously. And I guess hopefully for more professionals as well, just to be much more aware of the diversity of presentations of eating disorders. Yeah, definitely. I think we've started to move towards that, but <laughs> there's definitely a long way to go, especially I think those who specialize in eating disorders are getting more aware, but you know, I have friends who are struggling with eating disorders with therapists who don't specialize in that and they aren't recognizing their symptoms because it's just not talked about in the wider psychological community. Mm. You know, I think I think that's such a good point, isn't it? And I think, you know, sadly as well, because of the kind of culture we live in, this kind of toxic diet culture where there's so much kind of fat phobia and weight stigma and, you know, it's almost very normal for people to be dieting. People don't even recognize, do they, that 
the signs of disordered eating. It's almost become normal, which is just so wrong. Yeah, no, for sure. You're almost disordered if you you don't have disordered eating (laughs) or not disordered, but you know, not, you don't match the general population, right? But Mm. it's more normal to have disordered eating than not in a way. Yeah, no, I mean, I think sadly very true, but you know, I guess we're on a mission, aren't we? To sort of slowly change this, you and I, and you know, lots of other people out there. So Molly, when I read your book as well, what really came across to me is I thought that you had really given a really sort of detailed and realistic sort of perception of what it is like to have an eating disorder, you know, and and I think, you know, reading it, you know, it it was very, very sort of realistic. And I kind of think from the many people I've worked with and from my own experience, and you have really sort of nailed that. So I just wondered, like, how did you, could you say a bit more about, yeah. you know, where you got your information from and how you were able to really sort of step into someone's shoes in that way? Yeah, well, I think that was one of the main goals that I had was, you know, whether or not the book's successful, I want it to be a good representation of eating disorders for the people that do read it. But I come from a background of having anxiety. And so I see, I tend to see other disorders through the lens of anxiety. And I think eating disorders have a big aspect of anxiety, you know, with control over food and a fear of weight gain, things like that, you know, depending on the person and the disorder, but really wanting, I think I could take my personal experience of anxiety and apply that. But otherwise, you know, I watch a lot of documentaries and read a lot of books, but really wanting to read personal accounts more so than like facts and statistics. And you know, I have people in my life who struggled. Um, so talking to them some, and I think really just trying to figure out what those main mindsets are and what are the main driving factors. Because once you have those, you can kind of, you know, tailor it to fit any situation. So like the need for control as an important aspect, then you can apply that to, you know, wrestling like in the book or mm. other things like that. I think just trying to understand those main mindsets and make sure that I'm reading a lot of personal accounts and then applying it from what I know from my own anxiety. Mm-hmm. Sure. But I think you did a really great job there, Molly, because I think it, you know, it comes across as, as very sort of authentic and genuine. And it's really interesting as well, isn't it? I think you're just saying about how you struggled yourself with anxiety and how you can kind of see how that translates maybe into some of the you know can translate into some of the eating disorder behaviors with like that need for control and I think I'm sure many people listening to this will really kind of relate to that because I think like you're saying in a way there's often huge anxiety underneath an eating disorder and perhaps particularly with maybe anorexia nervosa although I think it's true across the whole spectrum Mm -hmm. yeah definitely and I remember part of why I have an interest in eating disorders is I, I remember I had a therapist at one point who was convinced that I had an eating disorder. She's like, you know, you have all the risk factors, you have bad anxiety, things like that. And, you know, I didn't have one and really examining, you know, why do I have all the risk factors and not have an eating disorder? And so many people do. And I think that's been something that I've been passionate about is looking at, you know, how, why, why does somebody get an eating disorder? 
and somebody else in a similar situation doesn't. Mm. You know, it's fascinating, isn't it? I think when you're reflecting on that as well, after having your therapy, like, can you see maybe why you didn't develop an eating disorder? Can you see if there are any sort of protective factors maybe that may yeah. have stopped you going down that route? Yeah, I mean, I think in general, my family did a really good job with relationship with food. So my grandma's a dietitian, and like her motto was everything in moderation except chocolate. You can have as much as that as you want. <laughs> um, <laughs> Great and, advice. <laughs> yeah, you can tell what food group we like best in my family. <laughs> but you know, growing up, it wasn't, there wasn't ever any pressure to eat, eat more than we were hungry for that we wanted. And, you know, there was some structure around food, like, we should have a fruit in the afternoon and a vegetable with dinner. But otherwise, there was some leniency. And there weren't, you know, my parents never talked about foods as good or bad, or, you know, I don't think they were ever on diets, which is rare as well. So I think just really growing up with some structure around food but really no negative perception of food besides those like I think also they really encourage you know food should be something that tastes good and that you enjoy which I I don't think everyone gets growing up Mm. sure when it's just really interesting to reflect on that isn't it and it it sounds like in a way like many of the messages around food for you were about, you know, kind of enjoying it and I guess probably being quite intuitive and, you know, making free choices, but also having a bit of structure and, you know, and I think it's, it's tricky, isn't it? I think as parents sometimes to navigate that kind of middle road, it's so easy yeah. to, but it's great to hear, isn't it? I guess, you know, yeah. you're probably really pleased that you didn't have an eating disorder <laughs> to contend with. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's it's really difficult. And I know, you know, a lot of kids are picky, picky eaters. And, you know, as parents, you want to make sure they're getting nutrients. And so drawing that line between, you know, making sure that they're getting enough food and getting the right nutrients, even if their palate doesn't, doesn't enjoy them versus, you know, giving them freedom to enjoy and explore food. I think that's a really difficult one. You know, I have with peach, it's like, how much do I do I doctor up her food so she'll eat it versus just letting her eat when she's hungry? It's obviously a very watered down version because she eats kibble, but I think, yeah, it's definitely, I could see why it, it's a hard thing to do. Yeah, sure. So just talking a bit more about your book, Molly. So like the lead character, Wes, in the book, his brother is a wrestler and he also is into kind of wrestling himself. And I thought what's really interesting is, even sort of obviously he kind of goes on in the book to develop an eating disorder when some traumatic things happen but I thought what's really interesting is sort of well before that started he kind of has issues with his kind of self-worth doesn't he and perhaps feeling inferior Mm -hmm. to his brother you know not feeling perhaps valued maybe in the family in the same way as his brother is yeah I think that was definitely a tricky thing with the book is I know a lot of eating disorders are triggered by an event, whether it's traumatic or just more impactful and a lot of them aren't. And so trying to decide, you know, is this going to be a representation that includes that or not? But I think whether or not that happens, there's always precursors to that where people have maybe issues with self-esteem or food or other things that, that don't come out of the blue, like the event might. So I really wanted to make sure that that was in the book, whether or not, was triggered by or worsened by an event 
Yeah, no, sure. But I just thought that was quite an interesting thing. So I think as well, obviously, everybody's experience is unique. And we don't want to sort of generalize here. But I think I know something that I definitely see in therapy a lot is almost that seeds maybe were sown, you know, just through Mm. different life events or for not feeling good enough in some way or another, probably quite a few years, maybe before an eating disorder kind of shows up. Yeah. yeah. And it's tricky, yeah. I think, as well, just to say as well, that's it's not necessarily some ever anyone's fault, you know, because I, I even think like with the character in your book, it was a lot of perhaps as well, I guess, his perception of himself when he compared himself to his brother. And, you know, it's a lot about his internal process, wasn't it? Yeah. And I think, you know, sometimes, obviously, parents play a role, but I think in literature and even in how we talk about eating disorders, I think sometimes parents get too much of the blame, you know, mm. for, and obviously in, in some cases they may have some role in it, but I think, right, there are a lot of other factors, you know, peers and genetics and perfectionism and things like that. And also I think a lot of times, obviously parents are trying their best and whether that's good enough or, or not for the situation, I don't think they're always given that credit for trying and you know, not, not being mental health experts and, and not maybe knowing how to have these conversations, which is something that I wish was talked about more, you know, how to talk to people about mental health and how to hold space for big emotions and validating versus problem solving, things like that, that I think just in general would be, be helpful, whether or not people have mental health issues or not. Mm. Yeah, and I think it's so true as well, isn't it? Because, you know, I'm a parent myself. And I think, you know, as a parent as well, when you're raising your children and maybe you're dealing with, particularly when your children are younger or maybe when they have like a physical health problem or, or whatever, as a parent, your job is very much to kind of step in, to fix it, to make it better. And I think it's tricky, isn't it? Like you're saying in a way with, with mental health things sometimes as well, particularly I think from sort of mid-teens upwards, parents perhaps are needing to, you know, take a bit more of that step back, you know, but, but still be very present in terms of validating and, you know, listening and being there, but not so much in that kind of fixing role. Yeah. And I think some of that is just being okay with your kid, like, or not being successful at first, you know, learning through trial and error. Mm. That's scary because, you know, you want them to do well and don't want to see them hurt or, or fail in any way. So I think, yeah, just trusting that framework is there and that they'll, they'll succeed and get through those hard emotions or hard situations. Mm. Yeah, no, sure. I think, I think that's the thing, isn't it? Because I think it's, you know, I think as well as my parent myself these days, I think, there's just feels like more pressure than ever in a way to kind of almost do parenting really, really well. And, um, (laughs) but I think that sometimes as well, it doesn't help with your children's mental health because of when you're putting that pressure on yourself as a parent, then again, you're sort of inadvertently probably putting that pressure onto your children and you wanted to protect them. You're you're wanting them to do it right. And that comes with a whole load of pressure, which is sometimes not so helpful. (laughs) <laughs> yeah I mean it's I think it's easy in retrospect but you know parenting doesn't come with a manual just as like you don't get a manual with your eating disorder on how to deal with it or how to get better and that would be great but 
a lot of it, you, you figure out what works and what doesn't. And it's easy to see in hindsight, oh, that, that wasn't great or that could have been better. Mm, yeah, so very true. So Molly, I don't want to kind of be a spoiler with your book and talk too much about it because I'm sure like quite a lot of people listening to this will want to go away and read the book. But I'm wondering as well, what are the kind of main key messages that you were really wanting to convey through the book? Do you think what what were the kind of really powerful messages you wanted to get across? Yeah, I think one just being that eating disorders obviously affect more than just what we typically think of as somebody with an eating disorder, that it is a variety of factors. And I also think that I wanted people to be able to relate to it. You know, I think everyone has some element of anxiety or fear. So putting it in those terms, I really wanted to make it something that people could understand in a way that we, not everybody understands restricting or binging, but Mm. I think we all understand, you know, fear, anxiety. So understanding that so that they can have compassion and empathy for those who are suffering. I think also that it, it is caused by a lot of factors, but that some of those factors might be how we talk about food and weight and shape and things like that. I think the role of sports, that a lot of sports have some negative pressures, weight and shape that can be really detrimental, whether it's wrestling and weigh-ins or, you know, we see it a lot in running, just this idea that if I'm lighter, that there'll be less body that I have to run with, mm. whether or not that, that actually affects performance. But I think just being more aware of, you know, these are things that could be really triggering and are there ways that we can mitigate those effects? Yeah, I think those are some of the main things. And then also, you know, that just because we don't feel like we're enough doesn't mean that we aren't enough, just that maybe we're measuring ourselves in the wrong way or, you know, having a really biased perspective. And also, I think that, and I think I tried to portrayed this with Wes's brother, Jason, that some of the people who look like they have everything together are those who are struggling the most. Mm. And right, that just because somebody appears healthy or not healthy doesn't necessarily mean that that's that's how they're feeling or how they're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and sure. Well, I think touched on so many like really important messages I think through the book which I think are really anyone that's going to read it is going to really you know just really increase their awareness and kind of hopefully gains a much deeper understanding about eating disorders I think it's, it's so interesting as well you talking as well about that kind of biased perspective because I think that is something not just in eating disorders, but generally in the world, we can so often, can't we kind of compare ourselves to other people Mm -hmm. who we might put on a pedestal, which is perhaps a bit like what Wes and your lead character, what he does with his kind of brother, who is really sort of successful and won all these trophies and medals and things. But actually in reality, like you're saying, his brother was actually sort of struggling and, and struggling as well, having to live up to all that pressure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think, yeah, it, with social media, and I think we talk about this a lot with eating disorders, but, you know, with a lot of editing software, there's even now editing software for videos, which is kind of scary. Mm. But, and I mean, like, more like Photoshop for videos type thing. But just that, as we have more and more technology, and even with the pandemic, right, where you're not seeing people in person, 
you don't get to see their day-to-day life or what they're struggling with, or you just see what they've curated to put out in the world. I think it's, it's important to realize that just because you don't see somebody struggling with the things you are doesn't mean that they aren't. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, it's so true, isn't it? I mean, everybody has their vulnerabilities. And I think as well, like you're saying with that biased perspective, uh, like, you know, your character wears, he's a very talented artist, isn't he? But he wasn't really able to recognise that as a strength because he was just looking at the things that he felt weren't good enough when he was comparing himself. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's part of our culture too, right, with the move towards STEM and just what what you can usually get paid for as a career is that art tends to be undervalued too, even though in some cases it takes way more skill and different skills at least. But yeah, just recognizing that those are super valid skills and that you have talent. And even if you're not, even if you can't recognize, you know, what that is or see what, what your individual strengths are at that point, you still have them. Yeah, no, so very true, isn't it? I think, you know, I believe that everybody really has their own unique strengths and qualities, don't they? It's just sometimes being able to sort of shine a light on those and to, yeah, to be able to start to acknowledge those and actually feel good enough deep down. You know, I think not feeling good enough, it's the kind of core problem, isn't it, for so many people and sort of underneath eating disorders and and other mental health conditions as well. Yeah, for sure, that like negative self-talk and Yeah, anxiety, depression, a lot of mental health. And I think in the short term, it can be really motivating. You can get a lot of work done and, you know, get a lot of projects accomplished because you're constantly striving to be better, which in the short term can be great. And then long term can be really disordered and make it so that you can't enjoy those accomplishments or really celebrate what you've done and what kind of person you are. Yeah, so very true. So Molly, could you tell us a bit more about your clinical psychology PhD? Because I understand you're specialising in eating disorders. So tell us more about that. Yeah, so I'm going to Washington University in St. Louis for my PhD in clinical psych. And in the US, we do classes for the first two-ish years. There's internships and we do research. So my research lab is on eating disorders and treatment dissemination, all kinds of stuff. And then my special interest is in the overlap with anxiety and, you know, how those differ. And if we can, we're really good at treating anxiety and really not always stellar at treating eating disorders. So can we take any knowledge from that and apply it? Mm -hmm. But yeah, so my research is really in that. And then classes are, are more general, but internships can be more specialized and then my my puppy peach she's a (laughs) mini golden doodle she is training to be a therapy dog so that she can go to internship and when I'm a therapist be in therapy with me because I think you know animals can provide grounding and emotional support and Mm. yeah I think I mean she's been wonderful for my mental health and I would love for her to help other people with their mental health too Oh, well, how wonderful, actually, because I just think even having her in the therapy room, that's an immediate kind of, as long as you like dogs, I guess, <laughs> but it's an immediate <laughs> kind of, <laughs> an immediate sort of soother, isn't it? And kind of icebreaker as well for just putting someone at ease, hopefully. Yeah, and I feel like I've learned a lot from her, too, on interacting with people. Like, 
somehow I didn't teach her, but she knows when, you know, when people are upset, either crying or just anxious, she'll go and sit on their lap almost like a, a little weighted blanket. And if they're crying, she'll lick their face. And it's really hard to cry when you have a cute dog licking your face. <laughs> she just intuitively kind of knows how to comfort people. And, you know, she never does any kind of problem solving. So really just <laughs> allows for those emotions to be there and for people to really just sit with those emotions, which is impressive. And I mm. have learned from that. Oh, it's so true, isn't it? It's just really valuable learning, isn't it? I think from animals because of, yeah, I think as a human being, yeah, sometimes when you are upset or anxious or scared, you just want someone to sit with you, don't you? And to mm-hmm. be be with you and not, yeah, not to fix, not to sort of jolly you out of it, but just to kind of, just kind of be there with you. That's really yeah. helpful in itself. Yeah, for sure. And she's really good at it. And, you know, she doesn't overthink things or <laughs> she doesn't have, <laughs> she doesn't have that perfectionism. So it can be, you know, when she's rolling around on the floor looking kind of like a little fool, (laughs) you know, it's really Mm. cute because she doesn't take herself too seriously. And I think that's a good reminder too. Like she just enjoys the moment and yeah, I definitely try to be more like her. (laughs) (laughs) Your role model. Yeah, she's mine too. (laughs) (laughs) So Molly, do you have any sort of early like little snippets that you can tell us from the work you're doing and looking at the overlap between anxiety and eating disorders? Like, is there anything that you can kind of share that you're sort of, you know, finding out about that? I mean, I think this is more general knowledge at this point, but there's a really high comorbidity, like depending on the disorder, up to like 80% between anxiety and eating disorders. So a lot of overlap. But I think also, we're seeing that there's more and more need for control as a motivator for eating disorders, maybe more so or in addition to, you know, wanting to be thinner for anorexia or, you know, Mm -hmm. soothing emotional eating for binge eating depending on what it is. But I think really just this aspect of food as a way to control and soothe uh, difficult emotions, fear, anxiety. In, and I think that that is going, going to be more important in diagnostic criteria and things like that, that maybe we don't talk about enough now. Mm, I think that's fascinating, actually. And I think it very much does kind of mirror my experience of being with clients in the therapy room because I think obviously like the weight shape part, the body image part, it is an aspect of it. But I think it's very common that clients will say, you know, this started off, you know, I didn't want to change my body. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's not how it started off. And I think sometimes the body image stuff can come almost as a secondary thing. But yeah. often it is more about control or managing emotions in the initial stages, even if that's not a very conscious thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, because the control over food or the emotional release you get from eating, that's immediate. And any weight change or body change, that's not going to be immediate unless you have a really disordered perception of yourself, obviously. But, you know, food is inherently one of the most motivating stimuli and that's to keep us alive. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense that 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 could also be a stimuli for disorder pretty, pretty quickly and easily. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? So Molly, do you have any more books in the pipeline? Are you kind of on a, on a bit of a run now with your writing? <laughs> kind of. So I had my minor is in 
creative writing, English literature. And for that, I, I wrote part of a book and edited it for that semester. And that one moves away a little bit from eating disorders. I think we'll write about them again in the future, but this one focuses more on anxiety and panic disorder and continuing that mental health theme and the role of anxiety. But the problem with editing a book as you go is it's hard to keep writing because you're constantly comparing like, oh, well, that first draft sentence does not look anything like that fourth draft really edited sentence. So I guess in a way, working on my perfectionism as I I write this book, for sure. Mm, Sure. Well, gosh, I mean, wonderful that you've already written two books. (laughs) I'm sure it's just the beginning of your journey. I hope so, yeah. So Molly, as well, I know you say in your bio that you are a big chocolate fan. So I just wondered what what are your kind of what's your favorite chocolate? I go back and forth between dark chocolate and milk chocolate. It really depends. Also, a big fan of Reese's, so like the chocolate and peanut butter. Mm. But yeah, I don't know. It goes in cycles where I really like dark chocolate for a couple months, and then really like milk chocolate, and I'm not sure why that is. <laughs> <laughs> sure no interesting I know Reese's is always like really popular isn't it in the US and we don't really get that in the UK like I think mm-hmm. a lot of supermarkets now do have a little part of the aisle where you can kind of get American chocolate or something mm-hmm. but something that it yeah is. it's not kind of mainstream over here <laughs> yeah it's very sweet I remember when I was in I studied abroad in Spain for a semester and my American friend said you know bring peanut butter because <laughs> It's not the same over here if they have it at all. So I had a couple jars of peanut butter in my suitcase. And (laughs) that's just, I guess, the cultural difference. And it is a lot sweeter than what we have over here, too. So So Molly, where as well can people find you if they want to kind of, you know, get your book or find out more about the work you're doing? Yeah, so a couple places you can find the book. It's on Amazon if you read on Kindle or a paperback. I also sell all of them on my website, which is just my name, mollyfenig.com. And I can do signed copies through my website. I also, on the website, I do a lot of reviews. I try to specialize in mental health literature and young adult, contemporary, things like that. But I also really like to offer free books for people, whether they're low income or just want to read without spending a ton of money. So I often pair up with authors who will offer free books or excerpts for in exchange for an email address. So, you know, every month I'll send out at least a couple dozen books. So if people are interested in that, can sign up for my newsletter, which is I only send out once a month. So definitely Mm. won't spam you. And then I'm also trying to work on ways to help other authors, you know, promote their work, especially in if they're mental health authors. So working on some, you know, outlines for things that have worked for me for marketing and getting reviews and where not to spend your money, things like that. So if mm-hmm. people are authors and interested in that or readers interested in opportunities for free books or promotions and whenever I have a promotion I'll obviously post that to my newsletter so that's all on my website at mollyfennick.com 
Okay, lovely. Well, gosh, Molly, it sounds like you're a very busy woman <laughs> with all the different bits you're doing. But also, do you know, do some wonderful work, I think, with, you know, just spreading messages about mental health and supporting up and coming writers and doing your research. You know, I think it's like very exciting times ahead, I think, for you. Like, you know, you're already made making such a difference. And I think yeah. I'm sure you're going to continue to do that. I hope so. Well, I am appreciative of you know, people like you who let me <laughs> come on their blog and or on their podcast or whatever and, you know, get to talk about the things that I'm passionate about and spread that awareness. So thank you. Oh, well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, Molly. And yeah, all the best with all your different ventures. Thanks, you too. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation just as much as I did. And do go and check out all of Molly's details in the show notes. If you're not following me already, do seek me out on Instagram at the Eating Disorder Therapist. And for further support with your relationship with food, do visit my website, theeatingdisordertherapist.co.uk. If you'd like to support this podcast, do visit my Patreon account and all the details about that are in the show notes. And I would be really grateful that if you enjoy this podcast, if you would follow, rate and review as it helps it reach so many more people. Thank you so much for listening today and I look forward to sharing another podcast episode with you very soon.